All right, welcome to the podcast. If you've been paying attention to fisheries news and social media, relevant magazines, and newspapers, you may have heard of a piece of legislation called the Modern Fish Act. Well, in this episode, we wade into deeper waters with Jeff Andrews, president of the Center for Sports Fishing Policy, to discuss the ins and outs of this bill and how it can positively impact our federal fisheries. For those that don't know, the Center for Sports Fishing Policy is the nation's leading advocate for saltwater anglers. The center aims to maximize opportunities for saltwater anglers by organizing, focusing, and engaging the recreational fishing community and stakeholders to shape our federal marine fisheries management policies. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, thanks for listening. All right, folks, welcome to the podcast. We're Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I have the pleasure of, of visiting with Jeff Andrews. Jeff, thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for Appreciate having me. It. Appreciate appreciate y'all for being here. Well, let's let's do like we always do. We start with introductions. We like to let uh, the listeners know kind of who we're talking to and uh, let them give a a pretty brief uh, synopsis of their career path and how they got to where they are. So, uh, why don't you walk us through how you got to where you are today? Well, um, thank you, Shane. You know, I'm the president of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy, and I've done that for the last 12 or so years. Um, for the prior 15 years, though, I was uh, the executive director and CEO of CCA here in Louisiana. Um, you know, our um, work is complementary as we focus on on. Uh, on, on advocating for sound conservation policy at the federal level now through CSP, uh, just as I was focused in, in my earlier career in conservation at the um, at the, the state level, and you know all of the all of the uh, the so many of the conservation wins that we've seen over the last several decades have come at the state level, at the state capital in Austin, in Baton Rouge, in Tallahassee, and so many other uh, so many other state capitals. Um, we're seeing a whole lot more of the battles fought going forward in our nation's capital um, in, in federal waters fisheries, which is really what brought about the original uh, establishment of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy. So I'm, I'm pleased to be with you today to talk a little bit about the Modern Fish Act and uh, kind of the direction that, uh, that, that, that we're trying to take this important piece of legislation. Yeah, let's, let's get into that in, in, in a second um, because we want to talk about the Modern Fish Act and the Magnuson-Stevenson Act. Um, Back up a little bit. How did you, what made you want to get involved in, in fisheries? How did you get to become the ED of CCA Louisiana? Um, you know, the, um, the state board of, of CCA um, found me. I didn't find them. Um, and they were looking looking for somebody who could be focused on focused on advocacy, uh, focused on legislative and regulatory change, um, um, at the state level, and uh, they cast a wide net, and they found me in the early 90s. Um, so I've been been doing fisheries work for a long time now, for about 25 years, um, and I think we've come a long way. During my tenure at at uh, CCA Louisiana, we uh, we made redfish, game fish permanently in the state of Louisiana. We banned gill nets in the state of Louisiana, um, and we uh, launched a, a pretty successful habitat program here um, as we began focusing on building artificial reefs and, uh, and many of the other uh, types of things that have been picked up now on a national basis by the Building Conservation Trust. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 you mentioned Austin and Gainesville and, and Baton Rouge and getting things done at the more local state level and, and the need to, 
to do those things on the federal level. What are some of the challenges you see at the federal level that you didn't uh, come across at the state level? Like what are the, some of the obstacles when, with regards to advocacy at the federal level that you don't have at the states? There are a lot of similarities, and there, and there are some differences as well. Clearly, there's going to be regional differences at the federal level. You know, uh, you know fisheries off California um, are different than fisheries off South Carolina. Uh, are different than fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and um, so many of the overarching um, uh, principles of conservation um, are important in all regions, but the way that they're applied at the local level, uh, at the state level, makes a big difference. Um, those of us that have, that have been involved with, with state marine conservation work over the years uh, can, can clearly identify that, uh, that the states um, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries, um, the states are our willing partners in conservation and management. Um, that's been the way that it's been for many decades. Um, conversely, uh, the federal government regulators uh, have been rather distant to us as anglers. They're not uh, they're not a bunch of folks that we're f familiar with, and as they hand down edicts from Washington, D.C., governing regional fisheries, it's been very difficult. Um, federal managers typically don't view anglers as their customers. Um, a state director of fisheries certainly looks out at, uh, at, at several hundred thousand anglers and views those folks who buy fishing licenses as their customers because it's through those license sales and the excise taxes that come back to the states through the Wallet Bro uh, uh, program and through the North American model of f fish and wildlife conservation uh, that conservation efforts at the state level are funded. It's different at the federal level. Um, there are uh, different laws that govern what the feds do. And uh, at the state level, uh, you know, we find there's a whole lot more trust between, between anglers and the regulators that regulate what they do. Um, I'll, I often tell the story, um, a few years ago there was a freeze in Florida and it caught many of the, uh, many of the sport fish that we target in Florida uh, in inshore waters. And there was a huge fish kill. And the state of Florida promptly announced the right thing. They announced a closure of the snook fishery mm -hmm. until they could better assess how the fishery was coming out of the freeze. And anglers across Florida heralded that news because there was a relationship between, uh, between the angler and the regulator and the state regulator. If the exact same announcement had been made by a federal regulator, there would have been fire in the streets <laughs> yeah. because, the, because the federal regulators have not done uh, nearly as much to, um, to endear themselves to their constituents, to their customers. Uh, we are the customers of the federal regulators, too. It's just that many of the bureaucrats haven't taken the time to get to know their customers. Yeah, and they're... I would suspect often listening to the loudest voice in their office um, historically. And and um, thank goodness we have folks like you at the CSP, you know, in there now uh, talking to uh, regulators and to our politicians, letting them know that anglers are an important piece of this puzzle that we're going to talk about here. The Magnuson-Stevens Act 
it was authorized in what 74 1976 76 76 so what was the intent of the msa or magnuson stevens act well um, um the original intent of the act um was to americanize the commercial fishery before the magnuson stevens act in 1976 we saw foreign fleets um foreign commercial fishing fleets fishing right up to our shores and literally stealing the bounty of america and and shipping it back to their countries and oftentimes processing it and selling it back to us now was that primarily just like the cod fishery was that what started it or what other do you know what specific fisheries well i mean um it was fisheries in the uh, in uh the, the ground fish fisheries in New England, mm-hmm. some in California, and many off the state of Alaska. Okay. Um, Senators Magnuson from the state of Washington and Stevens from the state of Alaska recognized the incredible bounty of the North Pacific, as did so many other countries in the world, because they sent their commercial fleets, like I said, to come in and scoop up our bounty and take it back to their countries. Um, today... The finest managed fisheries in the world are in the North Pacific, um, and they are, uh, and 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 that's due in no small part to the successes of the Magnuson Stevens Act. Uh, we often say they don't call it Magnuson Stevens for nothing. The focus of the act was on the home areas of those two senators, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and indeed. Since the since the original purpose was to Americanize the commercial fishing industry, um, they did exactly that. The uh, the act, the original act, established our EEZ, the exclusive economic zone um, that goes from the shoreline out to 200 miles, um, and. Most other countries in the world have established their own EEZs um, afterwards, but America was really blazing the trail to claim those waters because that because that mattered um, to us in every way. Um, the um, the act has been reauthorized a number of times since 1976, and. Each time there's been a reauthorization, typically when Congress renews an act every 10 years, they call that a a reauthorization. Each time uh, Congress has done so, Congress has done a little more um, to better manage the commercial fishery. Um, The first reauthorization was actually in 1996, um, and it was... Uh, to ensure the professionalization of the commercial fishery and to try to stop overfishing, um, and those reauthorizations made a and that and that reauthorization made a big difference. Later in 2006, 2007, there was an additional reauthorization. But every time Congress has gone in to touch the Magnuson-Stevens Act and to tweak it, it's been to tweak the commercial, uh, the, 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 the commercial fishing industry's stake in America's public fishery resources. Um, we have um, been supportive of many of the conservation tenants of of the of the different reauthorizations, uh, but none of the reauthorizations ever focused on the recreational fishing industry. Back in 1976, um, you can imagine the technology for a recreational fisherman was a little different than it uh, than it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we will we we often use the comparison 
back in 1976, the coolest, uh, the, uh, the coolest product shown at the Miami Boat Show um, was an 18-foot center console with a 150 two-stroke, excuse me, with a 150 four-stroke, two-stroke on it. Um, and technology's changed a lot. Technology has changed a lot. Um, you know, um, today, the, uh, the, recreation, the saltwater recreational fishing industry um, is, uh, is a huge economic powerhouse. Um, it is on par with the commercial fishing, uh, um, the saltwater commercial fishing industry. Um, and we think that it's time for Congress to pay attention to our industry and to make certain that in, that in any tweaks made to the Magnuson-Stevens Act, that Congress recognizes our $63 billion a year business. So it's been 12 years since the last reauthorization. Right. So it hasn't been touched in 12 years. And even in that period of time, recreational fishing has changed. I mean, they're, That's correct. And it's continually to, to, to develop. And um, with the technologies that are out there today, it certainly is a good time to look at doing some things different and we'll i think we'll have time today to touch on some of those different things so you you gave a pretty good overview of the magnuson stevens act so let's give an overview of the modern fish act and there's 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 a a senate bill that's out that is the modern fish act and then there's a house bill that was recently passed by the house that had key components of the modern fish act in it so you can can you kind of explain both of those because i know some people that i've talked to we're confused as to which one was the Modern Fish Act and what does this House bill mean as it relates to the Modern Fish Act? Sure, sure. So, um, so, so first and foremost, the Modern Fish Act um, includes the updates to federal law that will provide a better balance of conservation and access by using more appropriate tools to manage recreational anglers and ways to improve angler data, uh, data collection. The bill was originally introduced um, by Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana and co-sponsored by Gene Green of Texas um, back in April of last year. In December of last year, it was rolled into the larger uh, Magnuson-Stevens reauthorization bill, H.R. Uh, 200, sponsored by Alaska's Congressman Don Young, who was in Congress in the 70s and was involved <laughs> um, uh, with, uh, with the original formulation of many of the tenets of, of the Magnuson-Stevens Act. So provisions of the Modern Fish Act passed the U.S. House as part of H.R. 200 back on July 11th. Um, it, I mean, it was a bipartisan vote. The Senate version of the Modern Fish Act is led by Senator Roger Wicker of, of Mississippi and Senator Bill Nelson of Florida. And we are awaiting floor action on the bill in the Senate. Um, We've seen a really strong bipartisan um, uh, um, support for the, for the Senate bill, which is S-1520. Um, and we continue to work diligently to try to educate the Senate offices on the Modern Fish Act so that, uh, so that we can get it across the finish line this Congress. Um, we have, um, we, we, um, we really wouldn't be this far along in the process if it were not for CCA members and interested anglers across the country um, coming in to engage with their member of Congress. Um, and I'll, I'll encourage all of your listeners, if, uh, if, if, you haven't, um, uh, if, if you haven't advocated with your member of Congress, with your senator, 
um, to, uh, to, to pass the Modern Fish Act, please do so. You can do so easiest by using the, the, the tool in our tackle box um, uh, to text FISH to 50457. That's text FISH to 50457. And that's the way that your member of Congress, your member of the Senate, uh, can, um, uh, can, can hear directly from you. So uh, you, you, you asked about the, the, the substance of, of the Modern Fish Act. I, I want to give a little overview of it. Yeah, please. The, so the Modern Fish Act really builds on the successes of the Magnuson-Stevens Act um, in ending overfishing and rebuilding depleted stocks. But it adapts the system to help bridge the gap that exists between the strict management requirements and the lack of quality recreational fisheries data so that recreational fishermen and the businesses they support will be able to enjoy the benefits of healthy marine fisheries. You know, uh, commercial and recreational fishing are inherently different activities. Uh, they need to be managed differently. Um, and as it stands right now, the federal agency um, is, is focused on using the same tools in their toolbox that they use to manage commercial fisheries to manage recreational fisheries. Um, we think it's important that the agency be given additional tools uh, to put in their toolbox so that they can help to, 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 to manage uh, all of us, all 11 million of us. Um, so the, so the, the Modern Fish Act is going to update Magnuson. Uh, to improve recreational data collection techniques and to encourage cooperative cooperative data collection, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the Gulf in particular mm -hmm. because we've seen a lot of a, a lot of advances here. Um, federal fisheries managers have for a long time relied on antiquated data collection techniques. As a, for instance, um, when they're trying to gather information, they call uh, coastal landline phones. So if you live in a coastal state and you have a landline, you might be getting a call about whether or not you fished recreational in the Gulf of Mexico on a day certain in the last six months. I don't think that's a really uh, um, accurate way for the federal government to be surveying the number of fish that come out of the Gulf. And, and now they're going back, not to cut you off, but now they're going back to snail mail because the telephone surveys were not accurate. That's correct. That's correct. And, um, and well, and I'm which sure which is probably not a whole. I mean, maybe a little better, but it's probably still not up to date. It's with. it is not up to date. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, calling coastal landline phones, you know, the landlines might go the way of the dodo bird soon, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, but those old data collection techniques are really incapable of producing accurate, timely data, um, and as a direct result. Um, management has been unnecessarily restrictive on recreational anglers. Now, that's the way the federal government has been doing it. By contrast, many states, especially in the Gulf, uh, have developed complementary angler harvest data collection systems that provide real-time data that is going to translate into better harvest data and allow managers to do in-season adjustments on particular fisheries. The Modern Fish Act would transition existing federal funds towards state programs to improve fisheries data harvest. Um, further, the Modern Fish Act would require the Secretary of Commerce to submit a report to Congress on facilitating 
greater incorporation of data analysis and stock assessments from state agencies and, and, and non-government sources such as fishermen, fishing communities, and research institutions. The, the only smart people involved in federal fisheries management are not employees of the federal government. There's a lot of folks out there that have a lot to contribute, and I think that our partners in state management, our willing partners in, in, in conservation with the states, uh, do a fine job. I'll mention to you uh, earlier, I said the best managed commercial fisheries in the world are in the North Pacific, mm -hmm. um, near the state of Alaska and the state of Washington. Um, the best managed recreational fisheries in the world, I would say, are managed by the state of Florida and the state of Texas. Um, and that's because it's state managers that are focusing on the needs of their constituents. Um, we think the federal government has a lot to learn from the state managers who are doing such a great job managing their fisheries. Of all the fisheries that are overfished in the country, um, I don't believe there's one that is managed by a state. Not one. No, because that's not in their best interest. That's exactly They're not right. going to deplete wildlife or fisheries down to nothing because if they do that, they lose their clients. They lose their customers. That's exactly right. You know, um, I often say um, commercial fishermen are focused on efficiency. They're trying to get, on, get out on the water and catch as many fish as they can and bring them back to dock and, and, uh, and sell them. Recreational fishermen don't, uh, don't fish with those efficiencies. They're not focused. They're not rewarded by those efficiencies. You know, for me with three kids, um, I take my kids out and we cast a single hook into the Lord's vast Gulf of Mexico. We need there to be a lot of fish out there in order for us to catch fish. Um, we are the folks who have been, who have heralded the message of conservation from the get-go because if there's not a lot of fish out there, there's not a lot of opportunity. And you're not going to have your kids interested in being on the water with you if you're not out there catching, catching and cleaning fish or catching and releasing fish, whatever you choose to do. We need fish in the water, and we get fish in the water by making sure that the resource is properly managed. We, we want access, right? During this EFP for Red Snapper this summer, it has been quiet, eerily quiet from recreational anglers because they're out there fishing or they have opportunity to go fishing. Right. They're not necessarily keeping, but at least they know that they can go out. And if they want to keep a snapper or two, they, they can have, they can do that. Prior years, prior summers, phones of the offices will be blowing up because they're upset. They don't have access. They want to get out there and all they see are red snapper everywhere and they can't keep even them. So it's frustrating for an angler to um, be managed like you said in this box that doesn't really apply to us you can't fit commercial and recreational fisheries in the same box they're two different activities like you mentioned right. they need to be managed differently so some of the, we talked about technology and you alluded to it with what some of the states are doing um parks and wildlife is working with heart research institute and they have eye snapper there's tails and scales uh, what does Florida have, eye angler or something? Yeah, I think Florida has eye angler and Louisiana has La Creole. Yeah. Um, and, and so far, the federal government um, um, in the Trump administration has certified as statistically valid and scientifically admissible in the management process. Louisiana's La Creole, the tails and scales from Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. Um, and then the Alabama program is called... 
I don't remember off the top of my head, but the, but the focus is trying to ease the certification and, uh, and the admission of, of, uh, of the statistically valid uh, data because the only people that are smart about fisheries management don't all work for the federal government. I think that's, I think that's a very, very important uh, lesson here. Um, you know, the folks at Parks and Wildlife, you know, goodness, Carter Smith and Robin, I mean, all those guys, they have done an amazing job, and it's, and it's because of them and because of their leadership across the Gulf uh, that we find ourselves in a position where we can be advocating with this administration that is inclined to trust the states. Mm -hmm. The name of the Alabama program just came to me. It's called Snapper Check. Snapper Check. Snapper Check from Outdoor <laughs> Alabama. And, and kudos, kudos we, to the folks over there. We should have known that. Um, you know, there's another point that I want to uh, mention is, um, is, uh, is funding for conservation efforts. Um, you know, um, anglers have skin in the game. Um, it's not just that we buy our licenses every year. It's not just that uh, that we're involved in, in in habitat programs like the Building Conservation Trust. Um, it's that so much of what the states do to advance marine conservation is funded directly from anglers. Um, the excise taxes that uh, are paid on the items that we use on our boats, um, the uh, the the taxes on, on, on motorboat fuel that comes back to the states, we're the ones paying for conservation on the ground. You will find that there are, uh, that there are advocates with really misplaced rhetoric that are claiming the conservation banner that uh, really have no skin in the game, uh, that all they're doing is just advocating for the sake of whatever their cause is. We're the folks rolling up our sleeves, getting dirty, and doing and doing on the ground conservation, and we need to take that that banner back because we're the ones making a difference um, in coastal communities, in coastal towns, in uh, in, in in coastal um, uh, reefs, and other uh, work that is that's making a difference for for fisheries and for communities. Yeah, you're exactly right. How how many habitat projects have these other groups done? to affect uh, lo local communities in the Gulf Coast. Yeah, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen a one yeah. in 25 years. Yeah. Let's, let's go into some more specifics of, of the bill itself. And uh, I, I wrote a few notes the, the other night just looking at this thing. So you, you mentioned that it, it's going to require uh, 60 days after enactment and every five years afterwards the council shall review allocations allocations and it's going to require some reporting uh, to be done um, on a on a routine basis and I think the intent of, of some of these things is to address the fact that the fishery changes habits yeah. change attitudes change the stock changes and one thing that I found uh, I didn't find it but um, Mike Leonard wrote it in an article he put in the sport fish magazine the Gulf Council manages 44 stocks. The South Atlantic Council manages, I think, 75 stocks. On average, they both, both the councils conduct seven stock assessments annually combined. So that's 119 stocks, and only seven of them are done every year between the Gulf and the South Atlantic. 
So between the, both of those, it'd take, if you did the math, it'd take about 17 years to go through all 119 of those stocks. How in the world can these councils manage these fisheries properly with the tools that they currently have and just kind of elaborate on some of these tools that we hope to include through the Modern Fish Act, how some of these tools we hope to include are going to give these councils a little more flexibility. Well, uh, you made a couple of really good good uh, points there. Um, I want to give uh, kudos to, to our friend Mike Leonard, who, who had a great piece entitled, The Modern Fish Act Offers Hope in, in Marine Fisheries Management. Um, you know, um, so, so two thoughts, uh, stocks, stocks that are assessed, um, and then the discussion of allocation. So, so first, um, Mike noted in his piece that at the core of the Magnuson-Stevens Act is the requirement uh, that each stock or stock complex, uh, each of the 528 stock or stock complexes, um, has an annual catch limit and accountability measures um, to end to end overfishing and to prevent overfishing from ever coming back. Um, now, uh, a very small percentage of those stocks and stock complexes are, are assessed uh, annually, and frankly, uh, some of them have still never really been adequately assessed. Mm -hmm. um, you know what what we see though is is um, is that if a stock is approaching or exceeding its annual catch limit, fisheries managers are supposed to use accountability measures to ensure that the limit is not exceeded um, or they need to come back to correct for an overage. Uh, that's a fantastic goal. Um, and it's great when the data exists, like in the North Pacific, where they know a lot about every single fishery in, in the North Pacific and a, a lot in New England as well. Um, because they're able to calculate both the, the annual catch limit on the current stock abundance, and they can estimate how many fish are being caught relative to that catch limit. Um, but what about in the fisheries where they don't have that kind of data? How is the agency acting when the only tools that they have to use are, uh, are the, really the, the, the sledgehammer that they can come in with that they use to manage a commercial fishery. You know, when you think about a commercial fishery, it is a relatively small number of harvesters catching a relatively large number of fish, and for the most part, bringing those fish back to the same port so that they can be counted. So in the commercial fishery, you're the, the, the managers, uh, the, the companies that are coming in to digitally count these fish. Uh, in the recreational fishery, there's 11 million of us. Uh, we fish all over. Uh, some of us fish in the surf. You know, a lot of you guys in Texas do a lot of wade fishing. Uh -huh. um, some of us fish from our docks. Some fish from boats. Some put in in marinas. Some put in from their camps. Uh, and they land fish all over. We are, the fish that we catch are really hard for managers to count. And I think the federal agency sees that it's got one tool, a tool where you digitally count every fish that, that, that comes in to a small number of ports and uh, with a very small number of commercial uh, harvesters r relatively uh, versus the 11 million anglers from all over the country who, who bring fish in wherever 
they are fishing recreationally. Um, we are difficult for federal managers to count. But oddly, we're not difficult for state managers to count. Why is that? Because state managers use different tools. They use tools appropriate to the activity that's being, being managed. Um, we don't need Parks and Wildlife to be at your house to count the number of speckled trout that come out of your fish box. Um, managers at Parks and Wildlife know that they can manage this important fishery through extraction rates, through mortality rates, through so many other, uh, uh, what we call them is alternative management techniques. And I don't believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, I don't believe there is a fishery in the state of Texas that is managed by Parks and Wildlife that's overfished. And you know why that is? Because the guys at Parks and Wildlife know what they're doing and they know how to use the suite of tools that are available to them in their fisheries management toolbox. The Modern Fish Act tries to put those same tools in the toolbox of the federal, of the federal agency. That's what's going to make a difference. Now, I want to back up to this question of allocation. Um, because the way that America's public fishery resources are allocated matters. You, uh, you said it earlier, um, um, situations change, um, stocks change, fishing techniques change, fishing seasons may need to change. So how a public resource is divided between user groups in my book really matters. And currently there's a lot of ambiguity around how to divide the fisheries pie. And that has led to a lot of confusing and, uh, and contentious times, really because, uh, because it's confusing and contentious and not required in, in, uh, in statute, the system that allocated fisheries many years ago using, using criteria of the day is now rusted shut. Mm -hmm. uh, the federal government has no interest in, in reviewing what allocations are. Um, and they would be fine if we never had to talk about allocation ever again. Um, but the reality is you're dealing with a public resource and there should at least be a review of how those resources are, uh, are allocated to different user groups. Just imagine if, if the federal government were giving away um, its oil and gas resources or its forestry resources without there being a process. Um, there is no process right now. Uh, the, the federal government says we're supposed to review allocation on a regular basis, and they don't require it, so they don't do it. The Modern Fish Act um, calls on the National Academy of Sciences to establish clear objective criteria upon which allocation decisions could be based, and it would require a periodic review of allocations in mixed-use fisheries in the South Atlantic and the Gulf. Um, you know, this is a point of contention um, because, because circumstances change. And councils deciding that they're not going to address this is just simply not acceptable. The legislation does not call for an outcome. It doesn't legislate that recreationals will get X percent and commercials will get X percent. The legislation calls for a process. 
legislation calls for a study to get to a process. It really is uh, hard to be against a study to get to a process to ultimately have an outcome. And that outcome, could it could benefit commercial, it could benefit recreational. It, it's not all one way and one-sided. I mean, it it's going to, like we said, it's going to, that allocation is going to shift and change with the change in the fisheries and the change in, in, uh, in, in technologies. So to think that just having a process to review allocation is going to all of a sudden blow the stock out of the water or take fish away from one sector and give it to another is ludicrous. Well, and, and really, um, you know, this particular section of the of the legislation is geographically focused on this the southeast the south atlantic and the gulf um i think this, this is probably a good time to, to, to talk about the geographical focus of a few provisions sure um most recreation most recreational fishing in america goes on in the southeast um, people have been moving to florida uh, people have been moving to coastal Texas, uh, you know, for, uh, for, 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 for decades, um, you know, lots of them for, for, for fishing, mm -hmm. uh, lots of them for a lot of different, different reasons. But because the majority of the, of the of recreational fishing goes on here, um, our region is the region that the federal government is having the hardest time getting its arms around because the National Marine Fishery Service is focused on the commercial fishing industry. It has been that way since it was founded. The Department of Commerce. It's it's in the Department of Commerce. Yeah. Um, unlike all the other f uh, fish and game, uh, fish and game interests that are based at the Department of the Interior, NIMS is based at the Department of Commerce. We have found in the Trump administration um, a f a friendly ear. Uh, with Secretary Wilbur Ross, who recognizes the importance of the marine recreational fishing industry. You know, he's from South Florida, uh, right off the coast from, from, from his house. You know, we have one of the world's finest sailfish fisheries because of the work of marine conservationists. You know, the, the East Florida closed zone mm -hmm. um, has made such a difference in the recovery of of, of swordfish in that nursery area, but the but the byproduct of that conservation zone is you know probably most everyone who you know that caught their first sailfish uh, in the continental United States caught it offshore in South Florida because of uh, because of sound conservation by the Coastal Conservation Association. Uh, it has made a huge difference. And w when you have a visionary like Wilbur Ross at the secretary uh, at the secretary level in uh, commerce, he's really focused on trying to, to, to turn his attention to a huge economic powerhouse, the $63 billion a year recreational f fishing industry. Wasn't there talk about, I think I heard discussion about them trying to open up an area in that nursery zone for long lining for, for swordfish or something of that nature? There has been a lot of discussion about that. There is a commercial fishing operator um, who ever since we established that area as a conservation zone 20 years ago has been trying to, um, um, to, to use his particular long line gear back in that, that area. Um, they've, they've made multiple applications through multiple administrations, um, and uh, we are hopeful that the Department of Commerce um, um, does not approve that application. And that would be an EF, an exempted fishing permit? That's an exempted fishing permit to allow a single commercial fishing operator uh, to, use, to use this gear in this nursery. You know, the, the reason why the 
swordfish fishery um, has recovered um, is because of this, uh, because we've closed long lining in this particular area. Uh, it really is not appropriate for the spoils of conservation to go to the very operator who caused the problem in the first place 20 years ago you know so we've encouraged the, the agency to, to continue to, uh, to to keep closed the, the east florida closed zone and, uh, and 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 be focused on that conservation zone for uh, the, it's it's a nursery ground for for swordfish for for sales and for and for so many other critters that are important to us yeah. so that's a good segue into because there is there is a section in the in the act on efps you feel comfortable talking about that and what the intent of that section is? Sure, sure. The, um, the, 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 there's a provision, there's a section in the Act that seeks to tighten up the way that exempted fishing permits are, uh, are approved by, by the agency. There is no question that the EFP provision of existing law has been used for, 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 for some good purposes in some of the regional fishery management councils. But, there, uh, but there's also been some funny business out there, um, like the, the, the EFP pr proposed for the East Florida Closed Zone, um, like the uh, EFP proposed in the South Atlantic uh, to establish a fisheries collaborative that would grant uh, basically a catch share, uh, an ownership interest to some specific members of the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council. Um, um, that, was a, uh, that was a particularly egregious application for an exempted fishing permit. Um, we published um, we published an, an op-ed in Sport Fishing Magazine uh, calling them out because it was so egregious. Um, and, um, and they withdrew the application for the EFP. Um, and some, some advocates for the status quo say that that withdrawal shows that the system works. Um, I think the system that works is, uh, is the First Amendment uh, because when you see that sort of, uh, of uh, sleaze being presented in writing uh, and you call people out on it, uh, then they have to walk away from it in shame. Yeah. So um, we want to try to shine a little sunshine on the EFP process to ensure that, uh, to ensure that when there is an exempted fishing permit, uh, that is requested that interested parties from nearby states um, can see what's going on, can see what the results are going to be, and that they can review it once again on a regular basis. You're dealing with, with, with access to America's public resources. Uh, there needs to be a regular review by the federal government in some sort of an orderly fashion. So that's what we're trying that's to do with this EFP provision. You know, the allocation discussions being had at the Gulf Council right now, and it's going to come up again here in a few weeks at the next meeting in Corpus Christi. And it is not a conversation that they want to have. I mean, it's clearly a subject that uh, they, don't, they, don't want to, they don't want to address. And it's obvious that the, the current policy that the council has adopted is, is inadequate. And so um, National Marine Fisheries has a policy uh, out there that the Gulf Council needs to look at because it, it that that policy that's out there is uh, based on I think 18 different criteria, and it ranges from from uh, criteria that may benefit commercial fishing and some certainly that would be the benefit of recreational, but most of them are 
to the overall benefit of the resource. And so just that discussion of allocation needs to be had um, at the regional level, um, but it's it's been ignored for so long, and I think it's just something that fishery managers don't want to touch. Well, and the thing it's, is... it's going to upset a lot of people. Um, you know, uh, this is a difficult conversation, and I think it is human nature for us to try to avoid difficult conversations. I think we, I think we, we all would rather not have an unpleasant conversation. But as I said before, you know, this is a, this is a public resource. Um, there is a procedure that is in the regulatory realm of the National Marine Fishery Service that the, that existing allocations are to be reviewed um, and addressed and uh, and that we are to use modern day criteria, social, economic, and conservation criteria to make allocation decisions. Because these conversations might not be pleasant, um, so many, so many uh, of the regulators want to hide their heads in the sand. That is not what we do. You know, the uh, overall, um, the recreational fishing industry. I mentioned that we have about 11 million saltwater anglers all over the country. Um, our industry um, employs 440,000 Americans. It's a pretty big, pretty big industry, um, and we and we, we have an impact on the U.S. economy of 63.4 billion dollars. Um, that's a big number, 63 billion dollars. Um, you know, we have that impact on the U.S. economy um, by catching only 2% of all the fish that come out of the sea every year. So let's think about this for a second. 2% of the fish generate about 63%, excuse me, 2% of the fish generate $63 billion a year, and 98% of the fish that are of the fin fish that are taken from U.S. waters each year by the commercial industry generate roughly the same economic output. Um, there is no question the commercial fishing industry is a big industry in America. So is the recreational fishing industry. And what we've really tried to focus on with the Modern Fish Act um, in our advocacy at, at the regulatory level, at the Gulf Council meeting coming up in Corpus Christi and all, the, all eight councils and in Congress is that recreational fishing matters. $63 billion is not something to sneeze at. And small coastal communities, you know, small coastal hamlets where, uh, you know, where there are, are fun marinas that families are in and out of, that's not the only place where recreational fishing, uh, where recreational fishing makes an economic impact. All 50 states have jobs that are related to recreational fishing. Um, one of the biggest propeller, um, uh, the, one of the biggest saltwater propeller manufacturers in the country is based in Indiana. You know, our friends in the state of Missouri um, house. Bass Pro Shops. Um, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of jobs in interior states that are important to anglers all over the country. Uh, we want to make sure that regulators and legislators understand um, that our industry matters. And as it stands uh, r right now, we 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 have begun to uh, to get some traction with this administration. We're. 
we're seeing the, the, uh, the, the councils start to pay a little bit of attention, but being committed in writing in federal law in the Modern Fish Act, we think is going to make a, a much, much bigger difference. What are some of the false claims out there about the Modern Fish Act? I, I saw an op-ed in the Houston paper. Someone had emailed it to me. And this was like two days before it was going to be voted on. House Bill 200 was going to be voted on in the House. So I'm sure it was all across the country. Um, this, this made claims that, well, here's this quote, a small but local, uh, vocal, excuse me, a small but vocal minority of people with money to buy nice boats enough to access the deep federal waters off the coast doesn't want to share the gains that we have achieved. And I'm, I'm summarizing now, but the gains that we have achieved thus far through Magnus and Stevens conservation efforts. HB 200 and Senate Bill 1520, so-called the Modern Fish Act, have been advanced and supported by these small moneyed special interest groups. Recreational fishing has increased in popularity and more anglers on the water than ever before. These interest groups use terms like flexibility to convince politicians that the Magnuson-Stevens Act is broken. Ultimately, she, this lady is saying that, that these provisions are going to lead to overfishing. And if overfishing occurs, it's going to lead to more bans on the consumer sector or on the commercial interest. I read that and about spit up my, my tea that I got from Bucky's. <laughs> the Modern Fish Act and, and looking at ways to address the recreational fishing sector in ways that we can improve our data collection and, and, and give managers more tools in their toolbox to manage us has no bearing on how many fish the commercial sector is going to be able to take out and and put in the supply chain and so for someone to to draw a correlation at, from this bill to saying it's going to lead to overfishing was well was a little upsetting so i'm sure you saw a lot of these sure, come sure. across so what are some of the false claims that you've seen well uh, well you know the um the defenders of the status quo um you know the folks that don't think we should look don't think we should have a study to look at how public resources are currently allocated for free um, have really ginned up quite a uh, misinformation campaign. They've gotten people to sign op-eds in major newspapers across the country um, to put out false claims just like that. And, you know, it is um, really disappointing. It's really disheartening um, because, you know, the 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 first con the first conservationists in america are us we're the folks out there who are you know who as i mentioned earlier we're on the water uh, we're the ones who have skin in the game we're the ones who have been uh, focusing on conservation and you know i don't know who this particular author is or what her uh perspective is but you know the the hand the literal handful of commercial uh, fishing uh, industry folks versus the 11 million recreational anglers who are who are seeking to enjoy America's public resources and have access to them um, you know there's a lot more of us than there are of them there's 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 no there's no question about it you know the the um, the the federal fisheries management system has been failing anglers for years um, my sense is that the Modern Fish Act 
is going to update federal law to properly distinguish, uh, properly distinguish recreational and commercial fishing. Um, um, there's no doubt that, that MSA has played a crucial role in, in rebuilding depleted stocks for a, number of, for a number of species. There's also no question that the nation's primary fisheries management law is critically flawed uh, by not recognizing the difference between commercial and recreational fishing. Um, the consequence has been these draconian limits placed on saltwater anglers um, uh, and undue harm for those who rely on the recreational f fishing industry. So, you know, you asked about some of the some of the some of the falsehoods. Um, um, let me hit one that I think is important here. Um, the opponents of the Modern Fish Act want to um, claim that we are seeking to exempt ourselves from annual catch limits or accountability measures. Um, the reality is that the Modern Fish Act simply allows for more appropriate recreational fisheries management measures and tools um, when current implementations of, of annual catch limit requirements um, has not been effective. It does not exempt recreational fishing, f recreational fishermen uh, from adhering to annual harvest constraints. For decades, NOAA Fisheries has tried to use these tonnage-based ACLs to manage recreational fishing uh, in real time. It really hasn't worked. You know, I have three kids. It's kind of hard for me to think about what fraction of a percentage of a ton do my three kids get to catch? I mean, clearly the, the fisheries managers in Washington uh, have a hard time figuring, out as, figuring that out as well. The states have been successfully managing marine recreational fishing with accountability measures, um, like I mentioned earlier, harvest control rules and extraction rates and many other tools. And we want to take those very tools and, let, and, and statutorily authorize the federal government to use those tools. We're not trying to exempt ourselves from any accountability. We're the ones who have been in favor of accountability this entire time, and I think we've made a big difference on the water. Well, the, the groups involved, and I think we should um, give go ahead and, and we'll list all, all the groups that are involved with this bill, but it's built into our mission statement. We, are, we were the first conservationists. We're always right. the first willing to say, okay, if, we, if we're fishing at, at our limit or over our limit, Take them away from us. We want to make sure that there's fish there. There's right. a resource there for our kids and future generations to come. So to say that, that we're greedy, that we want all the fish to ourselves, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's a ludicrous notion. Um, go, go ahead and give recognition to all, if you can, all of the uh, partners and, and uh, supporters of sure. This, of this bill. Yeah. So, um, so well. So, so first and foremost, uh, I want to highlight the um, the the members of our MSA working group. Our uh, coalition um, starts with 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 IGFA, the International Game Fish Association, uh, ASA, the American Sport Fishing Association, of course, CCA Coastal Conservation Association, um, the Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation. The Recreational Fishing Alliance, Recreational Fishing Alliance, the Center for Sport Fishing Policy, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, the National Marine Manufacturers Association, the Billfish Foundation, and the Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation. 
those are the 10 core groups that have been so instrumental in crafting this piece of legislation. The number of supporters, though, goes into the scores and hundreds even, um, and, and, and that's just on the recreational fishing side of of the equation. There are commercial fishing uh, uh, organizations all over the country as well that are in favor of this piece of legislation. This is a controversial topic. This deals with America's public fishery resources. Uh, it's complicated. Lots of things in, in, in Washington are uh, complicated. Uh, but, but I think that we have really found a sweet spot because we're trying to do something that has not been, been done before. Uh, uh, clarify in federal law uh, a, a very important reality. Commercial fishing and recreational fishing are inherently different activities and they ought to be managed differently. Um, I think that's why we've seen this broad support uh, from, from so many in, the, in, in both the commercial and the recreational sectors. Um, are there naysayers in Washington, D.C.? There are always naysayers. Uh, but I have to tell you, at, uh, at this date, um, one-fifth of the United States Senate, 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans, uh, are co-sponsoring this, this legislation, um, S-1520. I think that's a pretty good place to be. Um, we have bipartisan support. We have members from coast to coast to coast that are engaged and supportive of this piece of legislation. Um, we don't want to ever let marine fisheries conservation become a partisan issue. And I want to uh, pay special tribute to Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi and Senator Bill Nelson from the state of Florida, uh, who were the lead sponsors, the lead Republican and the lead Democrat on this Senate bill. I think we've found the sweet spot, and I think we can get across the finish line, but we only do that if your listeners are engaged, if they are contacting their senators to help us pull it across the finish line. Um, the, the, the easy advocacy tool is, uh, is texting the word FISH to 50457. That's FISH texted to 50457, and you can send a message directly to your U.S. senators and your congressmen to share your thoughts about fisheries conservation, to share your thoughts about what a good job Parks and Wildlife does as compared to what some of the federal bureaucrats are doing. Uh, that matters. Your personal, uh, your personal experience uh, conveyed to your legislator, that's what moves government. That's what moves mountains. If any, if any listeners have personal access to a, uh, a, a senator, do you have a, a place where they can have resources to, you know, website or anything that yes. they could look at where they can get some, a little more information? Surely. Um, our website is sportfishingpolicy.com. That's sportfishingpolicy.com. And, um, and if you use the texting tool that I, that I mentioned earlier, um, um, texting fish to 50457, that will get you to a, to a, uh, to a suggested pre-written text if you'd like to, to pick that up. Um, or um, you can always find additional information, as I said, on our website or CCA's mm -hmm. website or our social media, which is at Sportfish Policy uh, for both Twitter and Facebook. So what's the, what's the next step in an ideal world? When does this bill um, 
voted on on the Senate floor, and what's the process? Well, um, the, the Modern Fish Act, uh, S-1520, uh, has passed Senate committee. It passed Senate committee in February, um, and it awaits action on the Senate floor. We are hopeful to, to be able to, uh, to get unanimous consent of all 100 members of the Senate um, to get us across the finish line there. Um, this is a very unique year. Um, the Senate is normally in recess the month of August. Um, the month of August um, is very uncomfortable um, for Yankees in Washington. Um, I think it's fine for you and me because we've grown sure. up in the South. It's the it's same, as, same as always. Um, but uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has asked the Senate to stay in session for most of the month of August. Um, so the Senate will be, uh, will be conducting business. Um, it is, um, they call it, the most, uh, the, the most deliberative body in the world. Um, of course, um, it's, it's difficult to get 100 senators to agree on anything. Um, you know, it's difficult to get two people to agree on anything, not to mention 100. Um, but, that's, but that's what we're trying to do. Ideally, the Senate uh, uh, will pass the Modern Fish Act, and there will then be a path for the concepts that are contained in both the Modern Fish Act in the Senate and the Modern Fish Act in the House to come together uh, and, for this, and for the same instrument to pass both chambers of Congress and for the President to sign the bill. Okay. And you can pass on this question because it's probably an uncomfortable one. Where are the hiccups and what regions do people need to really focus? If they live in a particular area of the country, where should they, where should most of the efforts be rechanneled? Or does that even matter? Should everyone just contact their senator? I think that it's important as we continue to build the groundswell of support for sound marine fisheries management that benefits all Americans, that everyone needs to dive in. You know, Clearly, um, senators from the coastal regions, from the North Pacific, all the way around the Gulf, all the way back up to New England, they need to hear because your listeners uh, are, are in Texas and really all throughout CCA's reach. And, um, and all of you have a U.S. senator that can be helpful here. Um, you know, I would say if you're in... Uh, reach of our voices, um, please dive in and let your member of the Senate know. The House has done what it needs to do. It's now the turn of the Senate. Um, we find on so many issues uh, that the Senate gets to be a bottleneck because, because legislation needs to pass with unanimous support um, or else it's not going to pass. Um, the Senate has a lot of important matters that pass through it, whether it's a Supreme Court nomination, whether it's an appellate court nomination, whether it's, whether it's appropriations. Um, you know, all the most important issues of our day, foreign policy, defense, pass through the U.S. Senate. Things need to pass with unanimous support. So I would say everyone, please contact your senators. Okay. Any other any final thoughts? Anything we, you want to brush up on before we close out? Well, I will say, Shane, thank you for this for this uh, for this venue. I think the ability to to have a conversation um, about some pretty weedy stuff and to get in the weeds and talk about uh, and talk about um, policy matters. Um, f fisheries management um, is complicated, but I think that's. Uh, I think that's one of the, the, the hallmarks of your advocacy work is your willingness to get in the weeds, to 
pull at all the strings and to see and to, and to see exactly the the right path forward. Thank you for uh, for uh, for hosting this today. I look forward to being with you again. Um, hopefully, after we pass the Modern Fish Act, that'd be great. And thank you, Jeff, for uh, having me here and and your team for uh, putting this together. Appreciate it. And thank you for all the efforts that you guys do in making the sausage. And hopefully, we all, we all get to eat it one day. So keep our fingers crossed. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.